0: Hi, I'm Mick Cronin and this is Watch Your Cause, a podcast in which I interview a variety of guests about a cause that is close to them, something they feel passionate about. I want to start conversations that educate, inspire and shine a light on causes around the globe that can or are having a significant social impact. But here's the kicker, each guest will nominate the next and become a chain that will lead from my very first guest to my last and ultimate guest of season one, Barack Obama. Got your attention? Todd da might. So hello and welcome to episode 9 of What's Your Cause. In my last episode I spoke to the wonderful Rosie Thomas um, and uh, it was a great conversation um, and what, a, what an amazing woman she is doing uh, such great work in such a, an important space and she nominated Ashley Streeter-Jones. So Ash is the founder and CEO of Raise Our Voice Australia which is amplifying the voices of young women and gender diverse people to actively lead conversations in politics, domestic and foreign policy ash was named both the youngest ever australian capital territory woman of the year and forbes 30 under 30 in 2018 in fact forbes forbes magazine described her as a youthful visionary i feel very lucky to be able to sit down and talk with ash it's a really brilliant conversation um, and, uh, and a very important conversation, I believe, as well. I ain't gonna go into it too much, as I as I always say. So, with that, let's get into episode nine of What's Your Cause with Ashley Streeter Jones. So, Ashley Streeter Jones, welcome to What's Your Cause.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We just jumped straight into it. So, I'll just ask you the question, Ashley Streeter Jones, what's your cause?
1: I am particularly passionate about increasing the number of young women and gender diverse people in politics and policy.
0: And can you explain to our listeners um, how you're doing that?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm the CEO and founder of Raise Our Voice Australia. So we're a non-partisan social enterprise that's been around since 2020, so it was a COVID baby. And our approach to this has really evolved over time. So it started with a training program Uh, which was really my brainchild and a reflection of my experience working in domestic policy, foreign policy, and then previously working in and around issues-based political campaigning. Something I'd noticed in all of those spaces is that there were particular groups of people absent and overwhelmingly that was young people, it was young women and gender diverse people, and people really who weren't middle-class, tertiary educated, white, non-disabled and overwhelmingly men. So I sat in that question of, well, why me? What is it that I specifically, as Ashley Streeter-Jones, can bring to this cause to make this change? And I landed on the training program because it was a way of sharing my knowledge, sharing some of the skills that I developed, but also sharing networks. And I'm really passionate about building community. So it was a way of connecting passionate, like-minded people with each other, because we know the importance of networks and communities in supporting our progress. From there, we've evolved to adopt the Raise Our Voice in Parliament campaign. So this is a campaign where we go out to federal MPs and senators, and we ask them to give up one of their 90-second constituent speaking slots to read a speech written by a young person from their state, territory or electorate. We have done research to make sure that we are Thoroughly understanding the problem that we're setting out to solve and that we're really hearing from members of, of our community as well. And then finally, we are currently working on our alumni and community building program as well.
0: I have so many questions. This is and what you're doing is yeah. is, is amazing, um, and I know you've uh, you know you've been doing this for a long time, but you're still very relatively very young in this in this space, so which is very exciting too because of what what's to come. But let's just take it back. How did you become, you know, politically aware or socially driven?
1: I am the daughter of expatriates, and that is probably one of the biggest. Factors in my social consciousness because it means that I grew up travelling. I grew up having experiences of a world outside of my own, and I can distinctly remember the moment at 11 years old on Christmas Day when I had that lightning bolt of consciousness. And in this very childlike way, we were in Soweto in South Africa, and my, my parents used to live in Johannesburg, so we've still got connections back there. And having this realisation that some of these children today are not going to have a Christmas like I am. They're not going to eat like I am. They're not going to get Christmas presents like I am. And I struggled. I remember that very visceral discomfort and this realisation that I was not inherently comfortable living in a world where such disparities existed. 11 years old is very young to realise that you're unhappy with the world that you live in and to start feeling quite jaded and I, I did feel very lost in that for a number of years but I think I was also quite lucky in that I lived uh, well my parents are still around I grew up in a household where we had a lot of conversations about things that mattered we didn't just talk about Australian politics or British politics we talked about politics from many countries around the world South African politics and Barbian politics and we were always encouraged to question, to be engaged, to learn, and taught from the earlier stages that we had a voice and what we did with those voices, my sister and I, it mattered. And that combination of having this experience and learning the disparities that exist in the world, recognizing that I was not comfortable living in a world where those disparities were allowed to exist, and then being taught that I had a voice that mattered and with which I could do something was a very powerful combination. And it's taken me to where I am today.
0: I'd like to speak a little bit about um, Girls Take Over Parliament. Can
1: you can you um, chat to me a bit about that? Yeah. So Girls Take Over Parliament was really the outcome of a frustrated conversation between a friend and I. So we'd already been working for a couple of years on issue-based political campaigning. So I was the State Director of World Vision's youth movement, VGen, down in Victoria, and then the National Director of Campaigns. So the work we were doing through VGen was to work with young people here in Australia to help them use the skills, resources and voices that they had to make a difference in the aid and development sector, but really focusing on what we do here in Australia, so it wasn't embracing that volunteerism model. But in that, we were doing a lot of political campaigning. We were working with politicians across the aisle. We were looking at running grassroots movement. We were running trainings around political literacy. Um, and it really tied into my fascination with systems and how systems make and break inequity and injustice. So in 2000, and must have been late 2016, early 2017, I was having a conversation with another friend who was also involved in this work with VGen was expressing this frustration that we were doing all this political campaigning, but there was no one that actually looked like us in Parliament. Nobody who shared our experiences and maybe nobody who was representing our interests. And why why was this the case? So we decided to embrace our audacity and sent an email to a bunch of MPs and Senators in our Federal Parliament with a pretty simple ask. Would they be open to allowing a young woman or gender-diverse person to essentially take over their office for the day? Fortunately, about 20 of them came back and said yes. And in October 2017, with the support of Plan International Australia, the group of 20 young women and gender-diverse people, myself included, had the opportunity to go into Federal Parliament and essentially lived the life of a politician for the day. So I took over as leader of the Australian Greens from Senator Di Natale, and it was a fantastic and very interesting day. But again, it taught me a lot, and it really set the foundations for what I've been able to do since, also noting that this was an interesting time between Julie Gillard finishing as Prime Minister of Australia. But I would say that the modern iteration of this women in politics conversation didn't really start until 2018 when Julie Bishop was overlooked as the, deputy, as, as the leader of the Liberal Party. So we were in a bit of a dead spot in terms of this conversation and we were really, really pleased to hear the conversation really amplify the following year, albeit off the back of disappointing circumstances.
0: Even reflecting back on, on that yeah, 2016 and then moving into 2018, Like, when you look back, um, at the time, you said 20, I think you said, uh, politicians. Did you get a sense that there was a real genuine interest in this, a genuine want to um, have this, like, um, initiative happen? Or did you you feel some of the political sides or, or whatever might have been doing it because others were leading the way and they felt it might be, oh, we should do this. We should be seen to do this rather than this should be exactly what we're looking to do.
1: It's a very good question and it's a question I've come back to multiple times running these sorts of programs. The reality is you're always going to get a risk of tokenism and a risk of virtue signalling. But when I've been met with this feedback in the past, and again, I do think it's a very legitimate question, what I come back to is, well, what's the impact on the participant? It's not just about the politician deciding that this looks good for them. What experience are they giving to that young person that they would not otherwise have And what is the long-term impact on that young person? I think when we just keep the conversation with how does this work for politicians? Again, it's a good one, but I don't think it's the most important conversation.
0: I'm interested in how you get into politics, how your background and your upbringing um, can shape that as well. Um, And where I'm going with this, Ash is, right? When I look at politics, not just in Australia, around the world and so forth, I see the people that are in in the hot seats, I see the people that are, that are representing their constituents and representing the country, states, everything, eh? And I think to myself, where, how do they get there? And how does someone from a low social economic background get there? And is there a level, a fair and level playing field? So, lived experience, And people that have so much to give but maybe will never get an opportunity because their education is not at the level. Um, Their opportunities are not given because of where they come from or where they were born or the family that they're within. It's just not there for them, yeah? And I find that really unfair, and I find it a real big missed opportunity um, in politics. And I feel there's an opportunity for people who normally would never think of ever becoming a politician because they, people from where they come from or people that speak like them um, do not become politicians, yet they would have so much to give. And then I see politicians and I think, how can you speak about something that I? That is so you look so removed from what this topic is? How can you speak about it? And then you hear them bumbling through it and you go, this is, there's gotta be a better way. Does that make a lot of sense? Like that's where I'm going. Can you kind of break that down? Cause you've done campaigns and you know all that in behind it. Like what needs to change there? Or what's, I'll be really keen to get your thoughts on that.
1: This is an excellent question. And I don't think it's something we're talking enough about in political spaces, which is the socioeconomic element. So you are entirely right to touch on that. I think the perennial challenge with this really is that to be elected in the first place you have to do a lot of unpaid labour. So let's assume that you're a politician who has gone down the party pathway. Okay great. So you need to be able to turn up to party meetings outside of work hours which are obviously unpaid. You need to be able to show up and pay your dues to the party which might look like everything from turning up to meetings to running and hosting fundraisers to working on other people's election campaigns to maybe even having a few failed attempts at running for office yourself. So they'll start you in a low probability seat and then they'll work you up to something which is actually winnable once you've built up the skill set. That is a lot of unpaid labor no one pays you to campaign so before you even get there you really have to put in a lot of time and it's time that is not available to so many people for socio-economic reasons unpaid care work reasons sometimes it's proximity reasons so obviously Australia we've got a huge rural and remote population sometimes it's, it is a question of access and I've heard some people saying well, everybody gets access to their MP and everybody gets access to democracy. And yes, to an extent, that's true. That's true by virtue of the fact that you don't have to pay to get access. But that doesn't mean that everybody can pay in that other currency which we rely on, which is their time. And there's been some really interesting news pieces come to light as well around the way that money does function in politics whether that's been through lobbyists and really getting this pay to access so we know for example that a lot of fundraisers which political candidates host you pay for a ticket to attend um, and who has the money to pay for those tickets that's also split down socioeconomic and corporate lines those if you pay for a ticket to attend an event It's not considered to be a political donation, therefore it's not disclosable, therefore you don't have to show the public who's getting access to you. Conversely, at the most recent election, we saw Climate 200 play a significant role in supporting political candidates from particular backgrounds. They did that through pumping money into their campaigns and yes, they were doing this along a particular value line, but it was extremely successful and in doing so, they upset the way that money has traditionally functioned in those spaces. But I think it's also worth looking at where have most of our politicians come from? What is their educational background? Well, most people are at a minimum tertiary educated. Most have finished schools. I'm prepared to bet that most of them would be from capital cities if we weren't regionally split. They're of a particular age profile. And coming back to what you said as well about lived experience, we still value a particular type of expertise. So this is a conversation I have a lot with young people, that young people are not represented in Parliament and even going through representative democracy, I think it's about 12% of our population is aged under 25. Those people are totally absent from our Parliaments. So who is better to make decisions about your circumstances and your future than the people who actually have that expertise. So I think it's a really interesting question around how does money and access function in this space, but also what kind of expertise are we continuing to value? And we've seen this as well. I've had friends who were younger who've campaigned for parliament and they've been approached by people who say, well, what would you know? What are you taking in? So I hope that we're going through this social shift on how we value expertise, but I also worry that this isn't happening fast enough
0: how do we ensure that you get that young people are getting um, more of a seat at the table like what's the representation at the moment in that you see around um, politics in regards to youth
1: so in terms of formal politics it is quite poor obviously for reasons we just discussed also being you know time lift expertise etc young people are not represented in parliamentary seats and that goes across the country. Actually, local councils by far have the worst rate of youth representation. The average age for local councillors is much higher than that of state or federal politics. Young people are also highly political actors but the ways in which they take action tend to be informal. So we're talking protests, we're talking petitions, we're talking conversations with people in their communities, we're talking social media action. those have not traditionally been valued as forms of political action but in not recognizing these as forms of political action we're missing a whole part a whole chapter about how change is made we are devaluing the work of grassroots activists and the wisdom of particularly communities who sometimes have very good reason not to trust formal political structures so As long as we continue to devalue and essentially relegate this informal action as being second class or low power, we're not only missing a significant chunk of the population, but we're missing the opportunity to make good policies, to build trust, to welcome people into more formal forms of political decision making. There are some really excellent solutions to how we can do this. One which pops to mind is citizen democracy. So getting a a representative group of about 100 citizens from a community and having them as a reference group for how to make decisions. So there's a couple of politicians trialling this at the moment. I'm not sure how it's going, but there are definitely other models that we can use to try and appropriately represent the perspectives of people currently not being heard we just have to embrace this principle of no decisions about us without us. If we don't have a good understanding of how problems exist, we simply can't design well-fitting solutions.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that answer. Um, is there anywhere that you see around the world, around the globe that are, that are doing this, that are, you know, th- that can be looked at and um, that are really progressive in this? Or do you think it's uh, at a similar kind of level to Australia? Or have you even, you know, looked that affair?
1: I'm partway through doing a bunch of research on this at the moment which is why I'm not too confident in speaking giving facts. As always I'm inclined to say Nordic countries Nordic countries do tend to be ahead of us in this regard. Um but I couldn't give a definitive enough answer based on facts in response to this one at this stage.
0: Going back to to, to you as well like you've you're you seem like a very you know, you're very passionate, very driven, um, and you've been doing this for a while. Um, even though you're still young, you're st- you've been doing this for a while, yeah? Do you feel pressure? Because if I look at some, if you look at um, some of the stuff you're doing, like, you, you know, you're Forbes 30 under 30. Yeah, you're the youngest ever um, ACT woman of the year. Do you feel that comes with a lot of pressure um, when you are, you know, doing the role that you do or invited to speak and so forth, that the words that you say are kind of, you know, people hang on them a bit more or they might interpret them a bit deeper do you feel that or do you feel the pressure in the role that you do to be that voice for you know for for many more people
1: I have never been asked this question before that's a really good question do I feel that essentially my words will have a heavier impact I've never received feedback that that is the case I do think a lot about what my role is in social change as a cis white middle-class tertiary educated woman. i spend a lot of time thinking about this point and thinking about what my power and privilege perhaps gives me access to that it wouldn't give other people access to how to share that power and that privilege so again going back to what we were talking about at the beginning things like running training programs and sharing networks. That's something that's very important to me. I really do believe as well in passing the mic. So I don't hold the answer to all of the things. I don't need to have an opinion on all of the things. And frankly, I don't need to either. The world does not need that from me. But sometimes what it needs to hear is people's lived expertise. And that is lived expertise that I don't have. So... I think of my role in that sense as an amplifier. So how can I take the voice of somebody who maybe isn't being heard as loudly? And I will caveat this as well in saying, I'm not a believer in the voice of the voiceless concept. I strongly believe that everyone has a voice. But if we're not hearing a particular person's voice, it might be because they're being talked over or because they don't get the megaphone. So I think a lot about how I can use that power and privilege to deliver messages that perhaps people wouldn't be interested in listening to if they weren't coming from a messenger like me, but then also how I can use that power and privilege to amplify the voice and share the platform with somebody else who might otherwise not be heard.
0: And on the other side of it, like you... Do so much of this work you I, I imagine it's very tiring it's, it can be relentless and, and, and so forth yeah who supports you and who are the people in, you, in your life that you know you reach out to to you know when you need to talk about something or when you're challenged by something
1: this work it, it is hard, and I wouldn't be where I am today without having the privilege to be able to volunteer. most of my career has been built on volunteering Raise our Voice Australia is entirely run by volunteers. you know we do this all on the side of a day job. And I also have a number of chronic health conditions. So for me it's a constant management and balance exercise of health and happiness and what well-being looks like. And I often reflect on the point that I'm not sure I would encourage other people to work the way that I have done in my career in the past which is a bit tricky because obviously the way I have worked, which has been in a constant cycle of burnout, has been rewarded. It has been rewarded by things like Forbes 30 Under 30 and ACT Woman of the Year. So it's a challenging, albeit hypocritical, spot to be sitting in. My greatest supporters and Enablers, though, are my partner. I think we have a very, I might say, a healthy balance of housework split, but actually he probably does more than I do. And essentially, I get to live like a man in a hetero relationship in a very kind of tradition. If we're taking a traditional relationship sense, my partner cooks, cleans, does the washing um, and also shares that mental load with me. And I don't think a lot of this work would be possible if I also had to manage a household. But also that's a good situation of being in a partnership. I've got obviously very supportive parents who I'm very close to my sister and I rely very very heavily on my friends. Both the friends who are not involved in this work which can be an absolute breath of fresh air to have a break from thinking about big challenging often quite demoralizing challenges but also the friends who are involved in this work because they're the ones that really get it when you say hey I've had a crappy day this is what's happened And in these spaces, the kind of experiences we have aren't always very relatable. I think the messy middle of any process is quite relatable. The pit where you've started and you're sitting in the challenges and stuff isn't going right and you're riding that roller coaster of the highs and the lows. But the types of highs and lows aren't always very relatable. So I'm immensely, immensely thankful and grateful for the people that I get to be on this journey with because leadership work and change-making work can also be quite lonely. It's lonely to be the person who's setting the vision, and who's leading the team, and who's being out in front, and who's sitting in the humbling nature of when things don't go well, and sitting in those questions of how do I lead my team through times when I have led them astray, or when I've made a judgment call that hasn't gone very well. That work can be incredibly isolating, so I do rely a lot on on the people around me, both when times are hard, but also when we get to celebrate the times that things go well.
0: Really great point you made around that loneliness as well, it could be because it is difficult when you're a leader like that. And, and I'd imagine it is for times for you, for you and, and for other leaders that are doing, you know, cause work and, and all this as well. Like it, is, it can be lonely. I don't think anyone really calls that out, but you've just called it out. So I think, you know, I think it's, um, thanks for that. And does your mind ever switch off?
1: <laughs> no, no, no. And that is, I have to say, it, in a way, it's something I'm grateful for because there's a lot of stuff percolating in the background. And that's where you, if you manage to leave yourself enough space, you can get some pretty incredible light bulb moments of solutions or things that you could be doing. But it's also incredibly unhelpful because you need to rest. You absolutely need to rest. And I, I really struggle. To disconnect, because for me, it's not just the outcomes of the work that I love doing, but it's the way that I live my values. And your values are so intrinsic and so personal. And if I come back to that initial discomfort that I felt when I was eleven years old, it's also the way that I, in a sense, manage my mental health and that I manage to justify the world that we live in. And that sounds very grim. I'll cover caveat by that by saying. I'm fine. I'm happy. I'm healthy. My partner's actually a psychologist. So, you know, that's very helpful as well um, in some of the conversations that we have and the reflections that I can engage in. But I think for a lot of people in activism spaces, the work that we do is so intrinsic to who we are, the way we move through the world and the way that we manage to justify our existence in the world that we live in as well. And that makes it incredibly hard to switch off from.
0: I always find it interesting. I think sometimes I remember going to this and I always found it interesting that a lot of other people had a lot of pressure on me to switch off. And I had to actually say after a while, like, I had to, like, go, I'm actually okay with it. So yeah. you can be okay with it. And I just found that like, it took me a while to actually that to sink in, going like, I'm kind of built this way. Um, before we go, I just wanted to, to go back, circle back a little bit to, um, to Raise Our Voice Australia. And you talked about like by volunteers and so forth. What, does, what would someone expect if they looked you up on the website, if they had a look at it now? What, like, what is the work that you were doing, you know, daily, yearly and so forth? Um, can you kind of break that down a little bit for us?
1: We're actually going through a rewrite of our strategic plan at the moment. So there are big questions that we're sitting in. We're very much sitting in our messy middle but really coming back to what is our what is our soul as an organization who are we what are our values what does success look like and in a way it's quite hard to label what a successful outcome looks like but what we have landed on as a team is it's equitable democracy and we use that word equitable very deliberately Um, moving past equality to equity, so looking at equity of outcome, not just of opportunity, and recognising that we are all at different starting points. We need different things to succeed. And democracy, because reflecting on that conversation we had earlier, once we have people who reflect our experiences, who can understand the realities of the problems that we're existing in, who can embrace that representative in representative democracy, we can create better outcomes for us as a country. I'm, I love smashing ceilings. We love a first. But actually, what our work focuses on is lasts. So we don't want to just see, you know, the first woman that went to space. We want to see the last time that there was inadequate youth representation in parliament. You know, we want to celebrate the last time that someone felt unsafe in a political space. We're working towards the lasts.
0: You're doing such amazing work. and I think that a lot of you know young women and and uh, gender diverse people and and youth in general are just like you know at at a massive uh, are massively benefiting from that you know so I hope that you know do you, do you take stock sometimes do you sit back and take stock do you allow yourself to do that
1: uh, on occasion I really <laughs> really love celebrating other people's wins I love taking friends out for dinner and really making sure, maybe even a, a little bit aggressively making sure that they're taking stock and they are celebrating their wins. I'm not so great at celebrating my own, and maybe this is part of the, the not switching off. When you want that, that big change, you want to be doing the best job possible. Um, it's often from that, that place of service, but the job is very, very far from being done. But I also really appreciate the reminder to do that because if we're not stopping and celebrating the wins along the way, it's going to be a very long journey.
0: And What's next for you personally? You've talked a little bit about Raise Air Voice Australia, but have you know? Do you do you think too far into the future for yourself? And, and where you you know what's next for you? I'm sure you have a lot of things bubbling away there.
1: <laughs> I have a lot of things that I would like to do. I'm actually about to start the Melbourne University Pathways to Politics course, so you know, no promises, but also never say never.
0: Oh, is that an I, announcement? Is that a full <laughs> Hang on.
1: Absolutely not. <laughs> um, I think a lot about where I am best placed to contribute to this issue at any place, at any time. And really, for me, I love having these conversations with people who can make this change. So speaking to politicians and advisors who are best placed to make this this broad change of the population. But the thing that gives me the most energy is working with communities. I love doing grassroots work and nothing gives me more hope than the people that I get to meet with on a day-to-day basis so some of the best things that have happened in my personal life and in my career are the things I haven't seen coming so I'm not a big planner for the future but I'm always open-minded to seeing what comes next.
0: I just want to thank you for your time as you um it's been amazing um speaking to you, but even more amazing listening to you, you know, and, and, and what you do um and the work that you're doing through um Razor Voice Australia and everything you've done previous to that as well and everything that you're going to do. Like it's 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 so amazing to have someone like you in in the world doing the work that you do. So I hope you do take stock of it and I hope you do um realise the important part that you're playing um every day um in this space. I just want to finish uh, with the podcast is you were nominated by the lovely Rosie Thomas and, uh, and part of this podcast is that, you know, I ask all my guests to nominate my next guest. So someone that they feel, you know, has a cause and um, that, you know, they, you know, we could have a, a chat about and we were uh, sharing with the, with the, with our listeners. So you don't have to say an actual name now. I'm not going to put you under that with fresh air, but if you do have one, feel free, but, um, but it's just someone that you can uh, reach out to and, and connect to the podcast and I can then you know, go on by way of sharing their cause and, and leading hopefully to, the, to the, end, the end interview of season one, which is Barack Obama. So, uh, so yeah, do you have someone in mind or do you want to take some time to think about that?
1: I would love to connect you with my friend Taylor Hawkins, who is the co-founder of Foundations, to, Foundations for Tomorrow. They are doing some incredible work on intergenerational fairness.
0: Well, I um, am so thankful for that and uh, you, didn't, you didn't have long. You had someone straight in your head, So, uh, which, is always, uh, which is always great. So I, look, I appreciate your time again, um, Ash, and look forward to hopefully staying connected and I will definitely be watching all the great work that you're doing um, from the sidelines and all the great things that you're achieving uh, going forward. So thanks again for your time this morning.
1: Pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much if
0: you enjoyed listening to this podcast please subscribe and share if you want to follow me on Instagram or on Twitter you will see the handles in the show notes this podcast was produced and edited by Mick Cronin